This is the Sea to Sky podcast with Marcus, weaving through the issues in Sea to Sky country. Welcome to another edition of the Sea to Sky podcast. My name is Marcus. I am sitting with our MP, Patrick Wheeler. 2020, Patrick, I'm sure when you signed on to become our MP, you didn't think we would be here. <laughs> I think back in 2019, you were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and, and now we're not even halfway through 2020. Yeah, well, it certainly uh, gets thrown around a lot, but we are in unprecedented times. Um, but, you know, 2020 has been a, a hard year, you know, ever since the right off the, the bat, the downing of Ukrainian Airlines crashed with so many Canadians that, that perished with, with the blockades, seems like years ago, you know, the pandemic, um, Black Lives Matter, like there's, it's been one huge, huge, huge challenge after another. And um, it certainly wasn't what I expected, but it, it's been positive in, in some respects in that it's really provided an opportunity to get really close with the riding, mm-hmm. getting really close to the community, um, developing really strong relationships with with businesses, with with other elected officials, with nonprofits, and and um, with with all types of folks, and so so that's been really really incredible, and um, I just I feel very very connected in a way that um, I, I hadn't uh, uh, foreseen. When you ran on your campaign, I, I know you grew up in the area and you're, you're familiar with the area and the, and the geography, but when you went door to door, what lessons did you learn essentially about this writing? Pre-COVID, pre-everything, I mean, there was certain goals you had in mind when you got into office. Yeah, well, I was really um, amazed by how when I, when I went door knocking, I, I got very, very similar responses and the type of, of issues that really people were focused on was, was similar all across. And that to me was, was really surprising. I thought it would be, yeah, it w- I thought it'd be much more varied. So I was really in, impressed and, and surprised to see that. You know, I, I had, I have, well, I had then, and I, and I still have certain goals that I was really focused on. And for me, what got me into politics was really focused on, on pursuing more sustainable development. So on, on, a, on a social level, on, on an environmental level, um, and an economic level, that was really my focus and, and to see what types of opportunities there would be within the riding to advance that, but also kind of policy and legislation at the national level to make sure that we're, we're fostering that and providing the right type of regulation and, and to have strong institutions that would uh, support that. So those those are, I maintain those, but the focus is, has shifted considerably. Oh, dramatically. Now. 2020 is, is one of those years that we all can wish, I think we can skip at this point. You mentioned at the beginning, we had the Ukraine Airlines uh, accident. I think what Trump almost started World War Three. He beat his impeachment. It seemed like all of Australia was on fire at one point. Brexit happened. And I think the Britons think their country's on fire right now. They had volcanoes, earthquakes, plague of locusts, you know, blocking out the sun in Africa. Like, And then COVID uh, started spreading outside of, of China. And then uh, everyone loses their minds, essentially. You know, you had 40% of the population thinking it's the end of the world. Another 40% thinking it's all fake. It's not happening. And then 20% blames the whole thing on cell phone towers and gazillionaires, right? The one thing everyone seemed to agree on, though, to survive, we needed the whole toilet paper. I mean, Charmin Ultra, I think, essentially replaced the dollar as the official currency for a bit there. And then, you know, of course, we had the shutdown. The world governments were forced to shut down. The planet pretty much locked down. And I think the only reason why we didn't lose our minds is because of a, of a gun-toting <laughs> Tiger King guy. And then we have Biden up there. And then there's aliens, murder hornets. I mean, wow, what a year. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think there's going to be some people that are going to be still getting rid of their toilet paper stock and 
you know, decades <laughs> from now. I've heard you, uh, you, you did some work in the Middle East yourself. You worked overseas. Yeah, it was, I, I've spent most of my career working in international development. Um, I, uh, I, I lived and, and worked in, in Eastern Europe. So I was based in, in Bratislava. But, um, but I did work all around the world uh, on projects focused on, on helping countries manage international water bodies. Mm-hmm. So I did have a chance to do to do some work in, um, in in northern Africa, not not so much in the Middle East, but but quite a bit throughout uh, Latin America and, and Asia as well. Yeah, I spent a good portion of time in the Middle East and in North Africa and, and in Europe, and they have the bidets, and so I, I have the bidet at home now, so I didn't have to stock up on the toilet paper. So I uh, I'm okay, <laughs> I'm okay with that. And then uh, obviously we've had the more serious. Uh, issues have happened in Canada, of course, what happened in Nova Scotia, um, of course, what happened in Minneapolis with Black Lives Matter movement transcending all over the world, like rightfully uh, transcending all over the world. So, I mean, wh- where do you start, right? Where do we start with this whole thing? I guess the first question I need to ask then is, did you get a memo at any time from Bill Gates about spreading the virus via 5G towers so he can implant chips into the population? I, I need to ask that just to clarify if that ever happened. I will neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> That's fine. I'm sure you've got a lot of that. I don't know how much how much of that you've come across on your social media with the whole 5G towers and the insanity. Yeah, no, I, you, you do hear a lot about it, and you know, I've heard stories of uh, different areas around the world where people are literally demolishing and burning them down, and and that's very very concerning. We had a couple in Montreal, right? They weren't even 5G towers or 4G towers, but regardless, they were burning towers down in, in Quebec. Well, you know, we're certainly not immune to that as well. I know in Lions Bay, their council voted down putting in a cell phone tower right there. So it's, um, and, and that that's concerning because we we really need to improve our, our access to internet across our country. That's going to be one of the main priorities coming out of the pandemic is improving connectivity across our country. So I think those those myths really need to to be addressed, and otherwise, it's really going to impede our, our progress and our recovery going forward. Well, yeah, the the economy has changed, right? The marketplace changed. I think the 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 way we do business has changed. So yes, we're going to need that interconnectivity. The way people do work is different, and that that affects the the population. Um, I mean, low wage employees have, have I think have been hardest hit in terms of job losses and reduced hours uh, since March, and, and employment is starting to increase again for these people. But they continue to be much worse off than than everyone else yeah and when you look at the the job losses it's um it's different than most other downturns in the economy it, the people that are disproportionately impacted are those that um younger people um in bc I, the numbers if i remember them correctly it's about 30 percent of people under the age of 25 are unemployed right now so that's very significant uh, disproportionately women uh, minorities people that work in the service sector or those without work those are really important figures to keep in mind when we're looking at how do we how do we recover, how do we restart, and you know how do how do we build a better community and, and country coming out of this. And so, it, but it, it does kind of give a, an opportunity to pause and think of how we got here and think of how we we can build the type of community that we want going forward. Yeah, and you're right. Women and young people have been much harder hit in terms of job losses and, and reduced hours than men. Um, you know, and this pattern actually is continuing uh, with StatsCan data even into May, um, as bit because childcare or child facilities, childcare facilities are not opening as quickly as they should. So usually it's the it's the women staying with the children. Schools are slowly reopening, and that also comes down to fear of where we're at. I mean, even though Dr. Bonnie Henry here in our area has done a fantastic job, and her response in British Columbia in dealing with the pandemic has been exemplary. 
there's still a lot of distrust of, of information and, and whether or not it's safe to go out. I mean, these are, I think, hurdles that we have to overcome to get the economy going again. Absolutely. And, and we're, we're so fortunate to have her as our, as our public health officer here because right from the beginning, she's been very transparent with people. And, and I think that's critically important when you're asking people to make major sacrifices. Um, and, and I have to give all the credit in the world to her and, and all the, the leaders that we have, uh, you know, the provincial and, and federal level here for, for making sure that we didn't have the, the type of outbreak here that we had, we've seen in so many other places, even though we had a very early and, and quite significant introduction of the virus here. But in order to get out of the pandemic and, and, and the things that we're going to be focused on from a, from a government point of view, when you're stimulating the economy, when you're providing that stimulus, it's you're trying to get as many people back to work as quickly as possible. And you're trying to get pe- money in people's hands so they can spend it quickly. And if people are staying home, um, you know, if, if people are, are quite reserved about that, that's going to slow our recovery. And it's really going to hurt the, the vast majority of our, our small businesses that, that rely on people getting back to a certain level of, of consumption, really. So with, in terms of stimulus, obviously there's so many programs the government put in place since the lockdown has happened. Um, the CERB, uh, the, 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 the wage, uh, the 70% wage, the, the rental, there's so many to go through. Um, what has been the most successful program? Which programs are like, okay, we need to tweak that. What are the lessons learned essentially with delivering so much stimulus? Yeah, well, I think many of the programs you mentioned, um, yeah, I might categorize it more in, in the relief Point of view, um, and I, well, I guess I would I would categorize one like the the emergency response benefit as as relief because that was meant to be a short term benefit for people that had lost their jobs because of the pandemic, and I think with that with that program it's been almost too successful. It's it's vastly exceeded the take up that that we wanted to have for that. And I guess on the other hand, our other program that we've really focused quite significantly on is the wage subsidy mm-hmm. to provide um, businesses with with 75% of a wage subsidy so that they can keep people on or rehire people to their companies. So we're trying to get more people onto the wage subsidy and that's that's something that is an ongoing uh, challenge that we're, we're trying to work through the, the best ways of doing that. But um, right now we have about 2 million people collecting that and we'd, we'd like to, to make sure people can maintain that connection to their jobs. And so I think there's some work to do there. Probably the, one of the um, most successful is the emergency business account for small businesses. And that was one we were able to roll out really quickly um, and to have people get that straight through their banks where they have an existing relationship. And I know of so many companies that, that have been able to access it. But with, with all three of those programs, it's been it's been something that we, because of their being put together so quickly, there's inherent flaws in them. Mm-hmm. And it's been so important for us to get feedback from folks to, to find out like where the gaps are. You know, who are we missing? Um, why is this not working um, or, or um, you know, why this is working. There's really been an iterative process, which is quite new for how government operates. These programs get put together in a matter of days or weeks, but typically they would take, you know, half a month or sorry, half a year or, or a year to put together. It's really been amazing to see how quickly government's been able to step up and respond and to provide really critical immediate benefits for folks so that we we don't have the type of devastation that could have been possible. It's definitely a collaborative effort. I mean, as for a minority government to be able to put something together this quickly, there had to be a lot of, 
you know, a lot of work, inner workings and people agreeing and working collaboratively to get this passed. And it, it comes down to the programs being put together and how effective they are. And, and if there is a second wave and we have to lock down again, this is how we adapt. One of the biggest issues I think that many people face be rent. So mm-hmm. was it ever discussed freezing rent on all levels from commercial to residential and say, all right, no one has to pay rent anywhere across the country if that was ever considered or if it was just couldn't be done? When we're, when we're talking about the fixed cost for businesses, rent is usually number two after HR. Um, and so that certainly right from the beginning was something we were quite aware that we needed to to, to make sure we could support businesses through. But I think it's important to remember it's landlords are are also businesses. They're not all kind of giant faceless corporations with, you know, oodles of, of, uh, of money and and large bank accounts. Some of them are are mom and pop shops as well. And, and conversely, you look at a lot of tenants, you could have a major multinational company as, as a tenant with, with a mom and pop shop landlord. So we, we, we wanted to find a solution that, that worked for both. And, um, that can respect very, very different circumstances here. But it was also very tricky to do this because the landlord-tenant relationship is in the provincial jurisdiction. And we had to come up with a program that all provinces and territories could, could agree on. That was a very tricky process to go through to, to get to where we're at now. And, and certainly the program that we came up with has its flaws. Um, it's it's very challenging for for many businesses to to access it with some of the eligibility requirements that that it has, um, and still still some provinces across the country have not haven't made it mandatory for for landlords to use it. Uh, I was really happy to see the province of BC finally take that step to make it mandatory when the uh, both landlord and, and tenant are eligible. Um, but um, but it's it's not going to save businesses on its own, and it's really meant for those businesses or those tenants that are in very very dire financial states and are almost fully uh, shut down. And you can you can see now with the the pickup of it, there's only about twenty thousand com- um, tenants that have been able to take advantage of it. So I still think there there is some work to do there. Um, but it, I know it has made a huge difference for for some some businesses and in Squamish and in Whistler as well that I've talked to. I had to smooth talk my property manager a little bit there to, to for him to actually, because they were going by case by case basis. This was before the province sort of mandated it. And, and it was one of those things where, hey, you know, I'm one of your smallest properties in the smallest town with and I have an art school for kids. So if you shut me down, it's not going to look good. I got I got media connections. It's not going <laughs> to look good for you, man. Come on now. Um, we're hitting a recession, right? You're going to need more than obviously than helping businesses pay rent. What is the plan going forward to sort of businesses get back up to pre-COVID times? Yeah, well, so much of that will depend on the directives we get from the province and, and Dr. Bonnie Henry. And I think it, the the data that we have is is a little bit misleading right now on job numbers because it was taken before we moved into phase two of our recovery plan. So it'll be much more interesting to see where we are in the next jobs numbers that'll be up until probably a week from now, mid, mid-June, because um, that'll give a good sense of how many businesses have actually been able to open up. And it's going to be really, really tough for a lot of those ones that are, have experienced the biggest job loss. When you're talking about the, uh, the restaurant sector, uh, most, most of them require at least 70% capacity to break even. And when you're limited to 50%, even if you can, if you can have a little bit extra capacity outdoors, that's 
you're not going to quite get to that level. And, and so those, those businesses are going to need some additional support. Um, and that's why the wage subsidy is really important to, to help them. And, and that's why we have it there. But as we move forward in this and as we, um, you know, we've been quite successful in flattening the curve. And if we can continue that on, those, those directives are going to continue to loosen as, as it's deemed safe. And that's really what's going to be critical for, for so many businesses. And I'm especially thinking of, of businesses in the tourism sector, because those have been, apart from the um, restaurants, probably hit harder than any, any other sector, um, well, actually harder than that. And, and so many of those businesses rely on um, people coming from outside of the region and typically coming from outside of the country if we're talking about uh, Whistler as well. So to get back to the pre-pandemic levels, we're going to have to open up the borders. And so it's going to take some time until we're safe to be there. And, and really the focus of government has to be to provide support in whatever form that looks like to help businesses bridge that gap so they can they can get back to the point that they were before, if that's possible. There are some things that may have, have changed for good. Um, there may be very different ways of doing businesses, very different ways of people commuting, and there will be a lot more people working from home, for instance. So, so those are all things that, that we need to take into account. But I don't know if we can say there is one set plan where we can say we know where we're going to be in a month and six months and a year, because so much depends on if we have a second wave. If that happens, then we're kind of back to, to square one. And um, But we do have the experience now of, of going through the first wave of, of how we can adapt and, and mitigate the worst outcomes of it. But the, the money is not limitless, though. The money, the, the stimulus to help people, the, the CERB, I mean, this is not limitless. I mean, at some point, you would have to gauge what, where, where, okay, all right, now we're really going to have to do something different. And so if a second wave comes, I mean, obviously, you can't keep throwing money at it. You're going to sort of have to, like, I don't know, a unified response, federal government going to the provinces, say, hey, listen, okay, second wave is here. Now, you know, we, we need to get a line and have a singular message instead of each province having uh, their health minister do something different or a premier coming up saying, oh, this is what we're doing and having different results. Yes, we're very fortunate to have Bonnie Henry uh, because her experience in, in pandemics is fantastic and also timing was great and she's very humble about, you know, her accomplishments. But then you still have, you know, Quebec and you still have Ontario they're still getting cases they've had to bring in the military to sort of help stem with those issues so I mean even if we want to keep you know grow the economy locally which is great local tourism is great stimulate what's happening in your backyard we still don't have an even playing field across the board so at some point where does the federal government say okay listen we're running out of cash and now we need to sort of sort of a, a straight response across the board yeah I, th- I think that's that's a really good point to make um, and it was very important that we do have someone like Bonnie Henry providing advice and, and guiding us here. I, I do think the timing, as you mentioned, was a really important one. You look at uh, now that we have the, the data on where the cases came from and, and when, we can see when you look at other provinces as well, so much of that, what's been happening in, in Quebec and Ontario has to do with them having spring break at a different time, right. them yeah. bringing back the virus from abroad. And we were just lucky because of the dates we had for our, um, our spring break that we didn't have the same types of same amount of cases being brought in from abroad. But there has to also be an element of certain provinces learning from each other. And um, one of the moves that 
that BC did that was was really critical off the um, right from the beginning or right from when it was noticed as an issue was um, making sure that people working in long-term care facilities only were working at one facility. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the the outbreak you can point to in, in Ontario and Quebec has to do with them not learning from that right away and making those changes. And you look at what's happening in, in some of the long-term care homes from what's been revealed in the Canadian Armed Forces reports, it's it's just shocking. Right. And that's that's going to be an area coming out of the pandemic that really been highlighted as an area in need of reform to make sure that we have proper care for our seniors. In my opinion, the the federal government uh, has really put its cards on the table on on how we're going to support people. We are quick to move on the types of supports for people and for businesses, for nonprofits. And and I think what a lot of provinces have been been doing, they've been kind of looking at what the federal government's been willing to do and then trying to fill in some of the gaps. And so we're at a point now that the provinces do need to step up. They can't rely on the federal government alone. Um, and we're starting to see more of that. And I think that's, that's really, really important. And, and the province of BC has kept back some funds to do just that, um, non-allocated funds for, for their recovery, for our recovery, I should say. Um, and, and I think that's important because from the federal point of view, we, we have very different situations across the country. And um, we're not always best placed to to be able to adapt to local realities that that may not be consistent across the country. Um, but what we've tried to do is is offer the same things to to each provinces, make sure that they have the financial supports, but also the um, the other kind of regulations and regulatory uh, supports and and guidelines uh, in areas of federal jurisdiction. And even those areas were ones that are done in very close coordination with the provinces uh, from everything from from how um, air travel and, and ferry travel work to, to borders and otherwise. So it's been, um, it's been an opportunity for all levels of government to really develop that closer working relationship. You know, the Public Health Agency of Canada, I mean, they, they want to collect as many case reports as possible. They want to know exactly what the numbers are. And they've been sort of overwhelmed by data coming from, you know, the, um, from the provinces. I've read a report in, in McLean's magazine. is like they're still using fax machines and they're sort of, sort of not in the know. Um, there, there could be more of a, a centralized information hub on a federal level. So you can do a, a response just like Germany and Norway have, which is just, you know, they get all the data, they allocated the proper amount, the proper amount of funds to the areas that need it most in terms of testing and contact tracing and just slam that curve right down. So there isn't uh, a second wave. There was a lot of criticism, like basically saying that federal government, you sort of stand up and say, all right, listen, provinces, this is what needs to get done. Start testing. So we don't have that second wave. Yeah, the the, cha- the challenge with uh, with that is um, when we're talking about a health that's squarely in the provincial jurisdiction, and so there's you know there's limits on what the federal government can do to kind of mandate that. I mean, we can work collaboratively, and we have to work collaboratively because if we don't, it makes it really a hodgepodge of of data um, that that we're getting that really inhibits the response to it. Each province has taken very different approaches to it, and and I would say actually in BC there's been less of an emphasis on testing than than other provinces um, have taken, and um, I think there's there's merits to different different approaches. I mean, really the tool that we have from the federal government's point of view typically revolves around funding and setting certain guidelines and standards that need to be achieved for funding is a very 
politically fraught tool to to use as a as a basis of withholding funding and and so rather our approach has been to to make federal resources available for provinces and capacity whether that's human resources capacity or, or financial capacity to support them in that just given the 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 way that our government is set up and the federal structure it, it does it does pro- provide some challenges that uh, may or not be present in in other countries um, but uh, certainly there's been some important lessons learned as we've gone through this. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand that the, you know, the provinces have jurisdiction over over health care. Right. But, you know, but that's different from public health it, when it comes to pandemic and, and epidemiological you know, statistics and quarantines and stuff. I, you know, I think the federal government sort of has precedent over over those parts. So we go back to the point of if we want to reopen the economy and things going again, people need to feel safe go out and work and open up their businesses like before. So it comes down to testing, 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 and making sure that we have it nipped in the bud and, and that and that curve does slam down and there is no fear of a second wave. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's both um, testing will be a big part of it. Um, and part of it will be, will be ensuring consumer confidence. And one of the things we announced yesterday um, is called the the post-promise, which will be a a way that different businesses can get certified with an icon they can put on their storefront to be able to communicate to potential customers that that they're taking the right measures that are appropriate for their industry to ensure that they're going to be safe when being a patron at at their business. So that's important. There is lots of support for testing from the federal level. Part of the challenge is that there's different types of tests that are being used and uh, been a um, challenge with a certain some tests that have been approved in Canada on having some false negatives. The challenge of, of tests that don't work really, I think, in, in some ways can undermine a kind of an overwhelming focus on, on testing alone. So that's I don't think it's going to be a, a silver bullet, but but it will be an important kind of tool as, as part of many others to ensure that uh, we don't have an outbreak um, or a new outbreak. And I think even more important than that is, is going to be um, uh, contact tracing, ensuring that we have the capacity, whether that's through through an app, which I know there's very, very, very uh, far along in discussions of having one app to use across the country, which will be great. Um, never, to some never, of the manual methods that are using right now. Never, never mind the privacy issues that might arise from you know a centralized app like that. Well, certainly, um, but uh, you know these are these are unprecedented times. Um, that's something that's being worked out right now of how to be able to do that in a in a way that will respect people's privacy and and will allow things to be anonymous, but will still be able to protect people and protect the public health. So it's, it's a difficult balance to be walking, but we're, we're, we're walking it right now and, and getting there. Unprecedented times. I, I, honestly, there's two things I am tired of, of hearing un, the word unprecedented and it is what it is. You know, it is what it is. Uh, yeah. It's, it's all about building that confidence, getting businesses open again. At the end of the day though, once we are overcome all of the, all of this and we've sort of reopened and we're kind of back to normal, now we put ourselves sort of obviously in, in a recession because a lot of money was spent. So what would be the game plan now as to how do we recover fully economically after all this is finished? Well, I think, I think first off, we're, we're looking at the, the spending. Um, and the, probably one of the questions I get more often than anything else is, is how are we going to pay for all this? And I think the best way of, of looking at that is looking at how we um, – looking at other analogous uh, times in history 
to to compare how how did we spend for it then? And the best example I, I've seen is is um, wartime spending. Looking at World War II, where our level of spending and the amount that we went into a deficit was actually much greater than than we're going into right now. We're actually we were in a much much bigger uh, deficit spending than we're in today. Um, but uh, but it, it didn't cause a ongoing uh, kind of crash in society because, um, in fact, we never actually paid off the debt. But the, the debt as a function of um, our debt to GDP ratio just continued to shrink as, um, as our economy grew. And um, over time with, with inflation, it wasn't, um, it wasn't as big of a burden as it seemed at the time. So the key really is to make sure that the spending that we make now counts so that, um, that we don't need to be uh, spending at such a high level and to make sure that the revenue that we have coming into government is going to return to what it was before. And, and so that's really been the focus of our spending and, and making sure that people have a job to go back to to make sure that um, we're not going to be you know, trying to, to turn off the taps too quickly because if we do that, then it's going to limit our it's going to make our recovery that much slower. So, so I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind, but, but also what the cost of debt is for, for a national government. Uh, for us right now with the interest rates on, on bonds, it only costs about a billion and a half to service a $250 billion debt um, each year. So it's, I think it's important to keep that um, in mind with, with also keeping in mind that the spending that we do have needs to be, cannot be reckless. It needs to be very targeted. Um, but, that, but that's what our approach has been to make sure it's going to be um, there to support people and businesses so that we can get out of this as quickly as possible and as best we can to be able to go back to where we were before the pandemic. So I was actually reading, a, there was an article actually in the... Um... Uh, in, the, in one of the national newspapers about uh, CRA claiming $4.4 billion from Canadian companies and individuals suspected of tax evasion. I would think that would be a good way of coming, getting, reclaiming some of this money, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's difficult to go after, um, for CRA to go after, um, especially the more wealthier people that are um, committing uh, tax offenses. and And it's always the... I would say a bit of a, a populist idea. It's like, oh, you know, why don't you just go after the rich, you know, hiding their money offshore? But it's not as it's easier said than done, because usually those are people that have really, um, you know, really well-paid and very effective lawyers and accountants and schemes. And so, um, and it takes sometimes five years, ten years longer to go after them. So. I think it, we need to keep that in mind. There's been major investments made in improving the ability for CRA to go after tax fraud, um, but it's it's a very difficult way of um, of raising revenue, uh, much to uh, um, you know the chagrin of, of some people that might think otherwise. Um, but uh, but but certainly there there is more to do there. I think part of it is is looking at our tax system more generally. Our tax system was was created in the 1960s, which is a very different time and environment than we have today. So I think I think we're we're high time to review our our whole tax structure, because it, over time has really kind of we've we've made little tweaks here and there, tax credits here there, but it was it was focused on the economy as it is then, and we're very different now. 
So I think it's it's high time that we review the the system as a whole and you know how do we make sure that we're eliminating those loopholes? How do we make it more simple? How do we make sure that it supports innovation and supports the type of economy we have have today? So so I think that that will be uh, not a simple thing to do, but but something that is long overdue. Are you going off script with that one? Uh, is that is that something that you believe, or is this something that's been? <laughs> that's something that that I believe, um, and uh, you know, it's. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's something that is uh, deeply opposed by government, but I think it's something that that could be looked at, and uh, I would certainly support it. Well, I mean, uh, any. I think that's what people have been complaining about forever is always, you know, the two things guaranteed in life is death and taxes. So if you're going to help fix the tax situation and make things a little bit better, uh, people will be all, all for it, especially if it's uh, not increasing taxes to sort of uh, supplement what's been going on, obviously. Wouldn't it just be as easy to sort of legislate them and give them extra powers to go ahead and do that instead of maybe languishing in the courts and, and doing all the, the lawyering stuff, which would take years to reclaim, like, like you said? Well, it's it's not that simple. And um, those businesses are operating under the current tax environment that we have or that was in place. And so um, you're not really in a position to, to, to change that and then retroactively go after all of um, or, or to create penalties now um, and then charge them for things that was done in the past. It's just not, it doesn't really work that way. So um, it's, uh, you know, businesses are doing what's in their best financial interest. They're required to pursue their shareholder value. And so they're using the tax system as, as best they can um, to make sure that they're doing that. But um, I think going forward, you can look at, at, you know, where there might be some, some areas where we can improve the system and, um, you know, it may be something, uh, small changes, but, but I think we are at a time now it's been 60 years since the last time we had a Royal commission to look at it. It would be a really interesting opportunity to, um, to rethink, to make sure that we have the right type of, of way of, of taxing, um, companies and businesses to t- get the, the type of outcomes that we want. What, what I'm also glad is that the government is actually taking a focus on, on the small business. And, you know, we talk about tax reform and how these big corporations, you know, use these tax shelters and stuff like that. But what I like so far with the government now is how they've been helping the small guy. It's, it's like it's news to a lot of people that small business employs 70 percent of the workers uh, throughout the country and that a lot of help has been going towards these small businesses. Not to say that you haven't helped any of the big corporations. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about bailing out Air Canada and, and other things like that. Where do you where do you sit on that scenario where bailing out the corporations is key or obviously we're doing a lot of help with the small businesses and that keeps going? I mean, I, I, I'm not pro or anti small business or, or big business. Um, the, the focus for the government has really been on supporting workers. And it doesn't really matter if you're, um, you know, for instance, the wage subsidy, you can get that if you're a big company or a small company. And it's important so that you're able to, to get that money into the hands of, of people. So it's ne- never really been about the companies. And, and as you said, 70% of people are employed by small business. And I think the proportion of small business relative to big business is 98% or something like that. So you can't really help people without helping the little guys. Um, and so that was our immediate and, and quick focus. And it had to be small businesses first because they don't have the, 
the bank account to be able to withstand, you know, a prolonged uh, downturn to the same way that, that some bigger companies that could have access to the financial markets, that they can get access to credit through through banks um, or through equity. But but it is important. To, um, there is that 30% that you mentioned. So we had to find the solutions that worked for them as well. And our, our solution for big companies has been the uh, large enterprise, large employer enterprise financing facility. I'm, so I'm forgetting the exact name, but so the, the, the leaf, the leaf program, um, <laughs> which is e- easier to remember, but we look at what's, what's happened in the past, in you know, past bailouts of companies, it's oftentimes not achieved the, the objectives of governments. It's not kept jobs. It's sometimes sustained companies that were already, you know, their business model was suffering and they weren't going to make it. Those learnings are really important when, as we we're designing this program. I mean, and, and again, keeping in mind the beneficiaries we want in this is is the workers. When we put together this program, we we wanted to have very strict criteria to make sure that it's going to do that. For eligibility requirements, we have limits on executive pay, limits on share buybacks, requirement to to maintain jobs and pensions, and the, the interesting one, which is a little bit novel, we're requiring companies to show how they fit in with our 2030 and 2050 uh, climate change plan as well. And I think that's really important, both from an environmental point of view, um, but also as, as um, you know, an economic point of view, because you need to be able to show how you fit into the 2030 and 2050 world to be viable today. And if companies aren't doing that, there's not going to be jobs there anyways. It's a clever way of designing a program, but a challenging one that's case by case. And I, I know some of the bigger corporations are are looking at it, but it, it presents very stringent requirements for them. And they were they're really looking at it as a, a lender of last resort. And, and it's important that we we have it in that sense because this is public. This is you know this is our money. Um, we need to make sure that we're being very uh, scrupulous and do our due diligence when we're when we're going to be spending it. But at the end of the day, um, we want to be able to preserve jobs and be able to support workers. Um, so it's important to have that if big companies don't have um, any other uh, alternatives that they can go to. But but it's interesting. Uh, you look at other countries. You know, some some have taken some very rigorous ways of, for instance, supporting airlines. An interesting example is is uh, in France. So they've also required uh, Air France to show how they're going to be able to reduce their carbon emissions. But the other thing they required is for Air France to eliminate all the short haul flights where they have a high speed rail um, routing. So I think that's an interesting way of, of looking at it beyond simply the, the dollars and cents, but kind of linking it to both economic and environmental outcomes. And it uh, certainly is a, an interesting model to look at for us as well. Yeah, I mean, well, different countries do different things. I, I think Germany bailed out Lufthansa uh, flat out, just like, here's some money. Here you go. Keep flying. Keep flying. Uh, I think Swiss Air is like, we're fine. We're good. We're okay. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure what's happening in America right now. Um, but if you look at locally in terms of what's happening in, uh, economically, like if you take a quick uh, look at the preliminary maps, it shows that uh, the impacts are not evenly distributed, especially in, in our riding here. West Van, Bowen, and Lions Bay are, are hardly affected. Uh, Squamish is about average in terms of impacts compared to the whole country. Uh, and Whistler and Pemberton are harder hit than Squamish and, and the average community in, in Canada. Now, nationwide, you look at Alberta and Quebec, and they're taking the biggest economic hit while 
Ontario was surprisingly less affected. And rural areas have relatively little economic impact compared to urban ones. And looking at cities, you know, the wealthy neighborhoods are okay, and the poor neighborhoods, not so much, you know. So increasing inequality has political and, and social consequences. And, and the big question, obviously, is, is what governments plan to do about it, you know, in the next 18 months, and particularly in, in this writing. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of businesses that have been affected here. And, you know, Whistler and Pemberton, even though Whistler is affluent uh, in terms of business, you're right. Tourism is, is greatly affected, and also Pemberton's been affected. Well, I'd love to see the map that you're, that you're uh, talking about here, because um, there'd be an interesting, uh, maybe visual representation to look at it. But uh, but you know, you, I think it's both in terms of economic outcomes as as well as health outcomes. You look at the the areas of the country where are, are hardest hit right now. It is racialized communities, uh, actually in, ur- in urban areas that um that are disproportionately impacted and and i think those those things are 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 certainly linked because um there's less of an opportunity to have space to socially distance for for many of those communities when you're looking at the the special or additional impact to to whistler and and pemberton i think a lot of that can be tied to the the impact of the tourism sector Uh, really obviously critical for for Whistler, but also really important for for Pemberton as well. I mean, the other interesting thing for Pemberton that's been a huge challenge is um, uh, for the agricultural sector as well. So much of the the labor force is um, temporary foreign workers. And a lot of them were not, even with the additional support, it's very difficult to get people to fly in. In, in in a pandemic context and and it really hit just before planting season for a lot of a lot of those businesses and so so they're in a very very difficult position to to fill those those um those positions and and, and those are in many cases like highly skilled labor positions that are not easily uh, replaceable that that's why it's important to have um you know the the general programs that that are accessible by everybody, but also be able to target target sectors or potentially target stakeholder groups that are disproportionately impacted as well. So that's why we've we've had some additional supports for for agriculture, um, and had a big focus on supporting um, nonprofits and service providers that are helping the least fortunate and most vulnerable in our in our society. So. Um, it's important to have uh, kind of a, a range of measures to uh, to be able to help folks out. Now, the map I'm talking about is the uh, the labor force survey from StatsCan. So they they sort of had a, a map of relaying about how some areas are affected more than others. Uh, I'm not sure how in depth it is. I mean, it's, it's StatsCan, so I'm assuming you know they they're, they're fairly accurate. Um, but it, it's just to show that our region, our our, our writing is not necessarily different from others. Uh, we have we have, we're all sort of affected in in many ways and. Uh, but in terms of what we do here in business wise, I mean, do you see our writing having uh, any sort of different issues or are we sort of like with the rest of Canada in terms of how to get going again? Or do we have specific um, writing issues uh, that we might have to overcome apart from the rest of the country? Yeah, well, I think I think part of that um, distinction, if you look at West Van relative to here, is a lot of there's a lot more um, office jobs. So a lot of those jobs, it was not necessarily as big of a challenge to have people be able to work from home. Looking further down the road, there's going to be more people that are from cities that are going to want to move to places like like Squamish, like like Whistler. Um, well, especially I would say Squamish and, and Pemberton. Cost of real estate is is lower. You get to live in a 
fantastic location. Um, and now you have this experience of being able to work remotely and there's going to be more growing acceptance of companies to, to allow their, their um, staff to work fully remotely or potentially work remotely some days of the week. That'll be probably the more likely scenario, have people work from home most of the time, but come in once or twice a week. And living in Squamish makes that an incredibly attractive option. That'll be an interesting thing to see how it shakes out um, further down the road. Specific to, to Squamish, there are a lot of tourism operators as well that have been disproportionately impacted, likewise in, in the service sector. And, and so I think that's that's also something that, that needs to be factored in and will have to be something that we'll look at uh, as we get to the other side too. There's a lot, lots of work to be done and obviously we're, we... Um... COVID is still there and we're still, we're still um, having to deal with it um, apart from, you know, what's happening now, um, switching gears a little bit, obviously to what's going on in the States. That's uh, obviously been affecting us. Uh, what's happened in Minneapolis. Um, it's, this is, a, you know, it's for me, this is a tough issue to talk about. Uh, you know, we're, we're two white guys talking about this. So it's one of those things where um, I don't, I don't think we can fully uh, express exactly you know, what the feel and what the rage is. Um, my wife who is, who is, um, Egyptian has told me to check my privilege many times. So, um, obviously this is having some effect on, on us and in terms of, uh, and demonstrations and, and things that we need to get done to, to change. Um, I mean the protest and support of George Floyd, um, they're continuing right now. We're still having protests in Canada over it. Uh, we did have uh, the protests in, in Toronto are focusing on the 29-year-old black woman who plunged from her family's high-rise apartment shortly after the police arrived. We had the young indigenous woman who was shot and killed in, in, by police in Edmonston, New Brunswick. Um, and so we, we have to, and even our Prime Minister uh, Justin Trudeau has said, we have to recognize that we have our challenges here as well. Um, and so it's it's so there is systemic racism in Canada, is what he said. Do you feel uh, there there needs to be big change and big reforms? Um, I'm not going to say hey defund the police, but obviously we're going to face some challenges and how to how to 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 overcome this. What are what have been the sort of the discussions you've had um, with with your colleagues on how to maybe tackle this issue? Mm-hmm. Well, I think like like with you, I don't know if I'm always the best place to talk about this as as a as a as a white person, um, you know, not having to, to, no, well, not experiencing the same, same, uh, racism that, that, uh, racialized people experience. And so I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss until I, I have a conversation with somebody who can explain it to me what, what it's like. Cause I, I certainly don't understand. I mean, I can look at the data. I can see that we have a disproportionate, overrepresentation of indigenous people and, and, and black Canadians in our, in our um, correction facilities. You can see the, the likelihood of someone having a lethal event with police is, is significantly higher, 20 times higher for, for black people than it is for, for a Caucasian person. So those types of numbers are, are startling. And, and there are things that at the federal level, I, I believe can be done that will help move the needle somewhat from the data collection level, making sure you're con- collecting uh, race disaggregated data. You can start there. You can go all the way to the other end, looking at uh, criminal uh, justice policy reform. Um, there, there are things that can be done there to to address the over incarceration rates. But I think it's it's more than 
than that. Um, it's a lot of the the systemic racism that that you talked about, and and some of that is is institutional with government, but a lot of that is is uh, you know widely uh, the types of microaggressions that that commonly take place that that oftentimes don't get mentioned. I think the, the the protests have really highlighted that and really put it to the forefront of as something that that we all need to grapple with that type of systemic racism as well. I, I certainly don't have all the answers to this. I, I rely on talking to some of my colleagues that that experience this very differently than than I do, and you know I just ask them you know what what is it that I can do. Um, how can I be an ally? What what are the what are the actionable changes that that can happen right now, and and look to them for for their guidance on on what we should do, and um, those are discussions that I think are long overdue, and and the conversation discussion happening across society that's important to have have right now. Un- unfortunately, going into this, we had somewhat of a you know, naivety that we don't have this types of racism in Canada. We look at other countries and we're like, oh, we're, we're not like that. But, you know, even the events of the last couple of weeks that you mentioned and, and the treatment of the First Nations chief and the violence that, that, that he experienced really is, has highlighted that we have a very significant problem here. Oh, even the, um, even the, the, some of the actions towards the Asian community here in Vancouver and in West Vancouver because of the, mm-hmm. because of the virus, uh, there, there's been some, some horrible things being said and done, which I, you know, we, as Canadians, I agree with you. We thought we were like, yeah, we're not like Americans. We, we are nicer and we're prettier and we're politer. Uh, but it doesn't seem, you know, that's the case. We have, we have ugly here too. Yeah. And when we have to identify it and call it out when we, when we do see it. Um, and just like you, like you said, the, um, you know, even within the complex of where my constituency office is, there was a, there was um, an Asian owned business that was, was, has been vandalized twice. And, and it's really, it's unfair. It's, you know, it's racist and we need to, we need to call it out and, and look at ways to, um, you know, denounce it in, in our society and find ways that we can avoid that happening again. And I think it's each generation that grows up in a more multicultural society, it's, it's less likely to happen. And, and we, we continue to get better. And some of these changes are going to take a long time, but, uh, but it is incumbent on, on making those changes now so, so that we can get to, to where we want to go. It's, it's also putting ourselves in a position to be able to do so. And, and, and you're right. It's about having that conversation saying, hey, when my, how can I be an ally and how can I help? What can I do to help and for you at, at a federal level? What kind of programs you can put in place? Um, or as even myself, when you see something which is wrong, you say, hey, that is wrong and speak out against it. And I think that's where I think we can do honor to what this, this the Black Lives Matter movement that's been you know going through the world now actually um and it, it, it's amazing uh, actually how this has transcended and it's gone worldwide yeah well ab- absolutely because you know racism is an issue everywhere all around the world and um kind of highlighted something that was it was a you know a, a very uh, shallow shallowly buried issue and you know even in even in a pandemic you know it's been highlighted as something a very real and urgent concern as something that that needs to be addressed and and is long overdue yeah we mentioned before or you've mentioned before that you know that this pandemic has uh, disproportionately affected uh, minorities uh, especially like there's those neighborhoods in in Montreal that are seriously impacted by covid are the poor more are more multicultural neighborhoods 
Uh, and uh, these are all something that's, I guess, you, you would consider systemic. Yeah, I mean, you, you can tie a lot of different factors in race and, and lower income and health indicators all same uh, neighborhoods. So, you know, I, I think a lot of people are, are have been fortunate not to to face the worst impacts of the pandemic, but it's it's those people that have been most vulnerable, those people that have, have lost their jobs disproportionately, those people that have the worst health outcomes. Um, and there's there's systemic um, issues that, that have led to that for sure. Well, that's one good thing. You know, the silver lining, I guess, of, of a pandemic is is the fact it puts giant spotlights on the holes of our in our communities of what needs to be fixed. It's like, oh, okay, well, uh, it seems like our, our long-term care homes, that needs to be fixed. Oh, these people are disproportionately affected by this. I guess that we, we really need to fix that. Um, like I said, growing support for the small business guy. Um, a lot of people are like, hey, let's go shop local. Stop buying from Amazon. We're right here. We're going to hopefully Hopefully flip a little bit or change how we perceive our, our world uh, for the better. You know, hopefully we come out of this fixing the holes, fixing those gaps, and we start supporting one another more so than I think we've we've done before. Yeah, absolutely, and and uh, it's it's certainly highlighted a lot of a lot of challenges that uh, that you mentioned here, and you know now this this time this with this light being shined on it. Um, and this opportunity to pause and think about it, it's, you know, how, how do we get out to the other side and, you know, be able to address these issues? And, you know, certainly I think all of those are going to be top of the the priority list. And, you know, I think that's that's something that, uh, you know, that, that it is important. We have we have new tools that we've been able to develop now to address it. And it'll be very interesting to see, you know, what happens further down the road, how and if those those types of programs get extended but also to engage in some of the more longer term structural reforms that we have that we'll have to take to address the issues of long term care facilities, for instance, and, and making sure we can properly take care of our, our seniors. We certainly have a long ways to go. We are definitely learning a lot. Is, is there anything you want to add or you want to uh, expound on that you want to come across and, and tell everyone? I just really want to well thank you for the opportunity to 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 speak on your on your show today. It's been really interesting and uh, really really enjoyed it, and uh, and it's just great to have an opportunity to to reach more people. You know, always for me, I'm I you know I'm a public servant. I, I work for people, and and uh, it's it's great to have more interaction to be able to hear more from people. So for for people that do get a chance to listen to this show. You know that we've talked about a lot of really important issues, and um, I'd love to get your feedback on things that are being done, things that can be done better, differently, um, and to make sure that uh, you know your voice can be heard, and I can advocate on your behalf, and uh, we can continue to build a better community that uh, that we all want. Well, thank you for joining me, um, and we didn't even talk about China. Look at that. <laughs> Well, there's always, there's always another day, right? <laughs> this is the Sea to Sky podcast. If you have a comment or story ideas, please check out our website at seataskypodcast.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Sea to Sky podcast. Thank you for clicking us on. 